Exodus 32 and 33. Like I said, it's two chapters. There's a lot happening here. I'm going to move as quickly as I can. I'm watching the time. That thing is like kryptonite to me. Um, every time I look at it, I, I get weary uh, because it moves so quickly. And so will we. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Uh, this is the golden calf, uh, what I like to call the golden mistake. It's the mistake that the Israelites make, and we're going to see the implications of that. But, but hear this. As I go through this, I don't want you to think them. I also want you to think us, because we do the same thing. And so Exodus 32 and 33, let me pray before we jump in. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me that God would do what only he can do. And so, Father, we come to your word asking that you would open up our hearts so that we might see you for who you are. Make these words real to us today. Father, we are in desperate need of a Savior, and his name is Jesus. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would stand in my body, think through my mouth, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. You are our King you are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so, so what's going on here, right? Maybe you're new to the text. Uh, you're unfamiliar with uh, Exodus. W what's happening in Exodus 32? Well, Israel steps into idolatry. And notice I use the word steps. Not falls into idolatry, but steps into idolatry. And, and, and this is what we tend to do. We go, no, 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 I fell into that sin. I fell into adultery. I fell into anger or covetousness or whatever it is. But, but, but that's not how it works. We intentionally take steps towards sin. And that's exactly what's happening here. The story begins with the people making a demand. Look with me. Verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You see, Moses has delayed coming down from the mountain. It was a delay in the eyes of the people. But, but here's the thing. Moses was not on the people's schedule. Moses was on God's schedule. It was a delay in their eyes, which begs the question, whose schedule are you on? Moses had been gone for 40 days. We see this in Exodus 24, verse 18. He, he was receiving the Ten Commandments and, and some other laws. But this unsettled the people of Israel. The impatience of the people is ultimately what led to their stumbling and sin. It was their impatience. And so let me ask the question. How's your patience? This brings up the question right out the gate. How do we handle God's ordained delays? Many of us, many of us are waiting on God for something or for someone. And if you've been walking with God for a while, you'll know this, that, that God is not always early, but he's never late. He's never late. And so waiting on God is not passive, but it's an active step of faith. 
And so how, how do we handle God's ordained delays? This question is important because how we handle it will often reveal our spiritual maturity. If we allow such delays to make us drift off into sin, then we will miss what God is doing. However, if we allow such times to deepen our trust and our perseverance in God, then that ordained delay will be good for us. But let's keep going. The people become impatient. They take their eyes off God and begin to take matters into their own hands. They come to Aaron and demand that he make a plan because they don't know what happened to Moses or if he's even coming back. Come, make gods for us who will go before us. Now, it's important that we see that this sinful desire came first from the people and not from Aaron. The incident of sin we are about to witness in this chapter started at the impulse of popular opinion and not biblical inscription. What am I trying to say? Friends, be careful of the crowd. They'll tweet good things. They'll put up really cool pictures on Instagram. But if it's got nothing to do with what God is saying, stay away from it. Be careful of the crowd. We see it here, but it's, it's true today in our society. It's also true among God's people. In the church, this is an issue. When it comes to representing God in the world and in serving people, there is a danger in starting with what people want or what they feel. Now, now I'm not saying that that's not important, but that's not where we start. We start with the question, what does God want? What is God saying? I mean, that's what Jesus did. And if it's good enough for Jesus, friends, it's good enough for us. Come, make gods for us who will go before us. See, the people wanted gods to go before them. Gods that would lead them to the promised land. Despite the fact that they knew that it was the Lord himself who led them out of Egypt. Despite the fact that they knew that it was the Lord who revealed himself to them on Mount Sinai. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Despite all of this, they were willing to trust a God carved by human hands to finish what the Lord had begun. This would become a pattern in the people of God. See, later Israel wanted a human king. No longer the divine king who is seated on his throne. No, that wasn't enough anymore. They wanted an, an earthly king. This pattern would continue centuries later. In fact, the Apostle Paul would have to deal with a similar issue uh, with the people in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? How foolish. Friends, we are no different. See, it's possible to begin the Christian life trusting Jesus and then at a later time find ourselves trusting in ourselves, following our own gods, hoping that they can finish what Jesus has started, often revealing that we actually never trusted Jesus in the first place. And this is why this is dangerous. Idolatry is dangerous. And so the people make 
a demand. And Aaron responds. Look with me in verse 2. Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and then made it into an image of a calf. He fashioned it with an engraving tool. This wasn't the spirit-inspired craftsmanship that sometimes we see in the Bible. No, this was sin-inspired. He thought it through. Probably had drawings that he came up with. Then melted the gold, molded it, and did so carefully with an engraving tool. He made for the people the image of a calf. Now why? Why a calf? Well, let's do some historical, biblical, contextual studies. That was a mouthful. See, remember, the Israelites had just come out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and oppression. And in Egypt, the bull was a figure of deity, and it was worshipped by the Egyptians. And they would have seen this over and over and over and over again for 400 years. It was, in a sense, engraved in their minds. But now they're out of Egypt, right? They're on their way to the Promised Land. Surrounded by other nations, they're on their way to Canaan. And they were seeing other nations worshipping bulls as well. In fact, in Canaan, the bull was worshipped as a god. And so I believe that Aaron thinks through this. He thinks through this, recognizes this, and then says to himself, let me give the people something they're familiar with. But that isn't quite the same. Something that the people would feel comfortable with, that that wouldn't be so intimidating. Think about it. A calf is way more approachable than a bull. And then look what happens. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Really? Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Hear this. This is a a tasteful way of, of speaking of the gross immorality that was happening among the people of Israel. They worshiped, and this included eating, drinking, drunkenness, which led to all sorts of sexual immorality. Aaron did the unspeakable, the unspeakable. He he takes something from the pagan culture, something that had had nothing to do with God. He, He takes from the pagan culture and then combines it with the faith of the Israelites who were commanded to worship God and God alone. And this sin leads to more sin. That's what sin does. Sin doesn't just stop. No, it it continues. It leads to more sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go, will make you stay longer than you want to stay, and will make you pay more than you can afford every single time. He does the unspeakable. And friends, this is how idolatry works in our society. This is how idolatry works in the church We ask the question, what's what's 
big and bad and scary out there. Let's bring it in here and find a safer way for us to worship it. Maybe we sprinkle a little bit of scripture incorrectly, right? Incorrectly. We sprinkle a little bit of scripture on it and then we tell ourselves it's okay. Right? Now we can reach the world. Now we're a little bit more acceptable to society and to culture. That's not how the mission of God works. It's not. Let me give you some, some history here. Um, in Rome, when, when Christianity basically took over, a lot of people tend to say it was uh, Constantine who came to faith and then was like, okay, cool, uh, it's okay to be a Christian now. Now, look, it's possible that Constantine became a Christian. I'm not going to doubt that. But don't excuse the fact that Christianity, the influence of Christians in Rome was growing like they could not control. And it was because they were distinct. It wasn't because they were looking to, to Rome and going, okay, what can we take and then change it a little bit so that it's acceptable to the people in the church? Or, or, or what can we take and then add a little bit of scripture to it so that we're not offensive to Rome? That's not what they did. There were four major things that literally changed Rome. The things that the Christians did that was very different to the culture in Rome. Number one was sex. How, how the church understood sex was radically different to how Rome understood it and partook in it. What I would call today sex and sexuality. Very different. God speaks on it and so we obey him. That's it. The other one was money. How the church of money, radically different to how Rome did it. And still they would go, you know what? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So they paid their taxes, but they still gave generously to the church. And so you can imagine, like the Romans going, what, what are you doing? I thought we're punishing you by making you give to Caesar, paying your taxes, and still you guys give generously. These people are different. Sex. Money. The third one was how they took care of the marginalized. What the Old Testament calls the quartet, the, the, the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. See, when, when, when Romans would have children, and if they didn't want them, they'd literally just leave them at the back door. Let them die. And so Christians, literally walk through the streets and pick up these babies, take care of them. They would adopt them. They would take care of the sick. When, when, when plagues would come into Rome and everyone was fleeing, Christians would be like, we're going in. There's people there, we're going in. And then the last one was unity in diversity. That as, as God was adding more people from different contexts, different ethnicities, different cultures, but yet they were worshiping one God. It, it blew the Roman culture. They thought they were diverse. Right? As they were taking over country after country after country. But they watched the church and they go, wait, well, there's something radically different here. It's the fact that we're distinct that puts God on display. What Aaron did here was unspeakable. But before we judge Aaron too quickly, we do this. 
What are the things that, that you're taking from, from popular culture and, and, and trying to mold and shape and, 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 and in, carve out for yourself so that you present it in the church and go, look, God is for this. And yet his word says otherwise. The gospel calls out idolatry. It doesn't try to befriend it. Calls it out. A little side note here. You notice it says here, early the next morning they arose. See, they served their idol with great eagerness and energy and personal sacrifice. People usually find all sorts of ways to wake up early to do the things that are important to them. This shows that Israel was willing to give of their time, of their sleep, and of their money in service to this idol. What are you getting up early for? What are you giving up your time for? Your sleep and your money. It'll often reveal that that is your idol if it's not God. Let's keep going. God snitches, all right? God tells Moses what's happening down at camp. We see this in Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. For your people you brought up from the land of Egypt are acting the fool. God calls Israel, watch this, your people. In the sense that they belonged to Moses and not to him. In this, I believe God is suggesting to Moses that he has intentions of disowning Israel because of this idolatry. And the following verses give evidence to this. Verse 8, they have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse 9, the Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people. The golden calf is stiff-necked. It has no movement. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God says, I have seen enough. And then makes an offer to Moses, one that you think Moses would not deny. If Moses would only agree, God would destroy Israel and start all over again with Moses. Then I will make you into a great nation, God says. Where have you seen these words before? Abraham. This would have completely changed the place of Moses in the history books, making him the new Abraham of God's plan for Israel. Moses had the opportunity to be as mired as Abraham was, to be honored by every generation after him, not simply as the cheese boy who became the deliverer of Israel, but as the father of a nation. And, and let me say this, if God had done this, and we know how the story ends, so we know that he didn't. But if God had done this, he would have still fulfilled every single promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus 32, verse 11 to 13. We see that Moses doesn't take the offer, but rather he intercedes for the people. He hasn't seen what's going on yet. 
and still he intercedes for them. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say, he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. Moses pleads with the Lord according to what he believed to be God's heart. He cries out to the Father's heart. And notice, Moses' prayer wasn't long, but it was strong. It's not the length, but the strength of the prayer that appeals to heaven. And doesn't this prayer sound somewhat familiar? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is Jesus on the cross. See, in Moses' prayer, he, he first gives the people back to God. It's like a, they're playing a game, right? It's your people. Hold on, God, these are your people. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? Moses then appeals to God on the basis of grace. He knows that God didn't have to bring them out of Egypt, but he did. And so Moses says, please don't stop showering us with your grace. We don't deserve it, but you continue to lavish it upon us. And so please, would you continue to do that? Moses then appeals to God on the basis of glory. Why should the Egyptians say you brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? See, if we go back, you you will remember that, that, that often God would say, I'm doing this so that they might know that I am the Lord, so that they might see my glory. And so Moses then appeals to that. He's a great student. He remembers. And then lastly, Moses appeals to God on the basis of faithfulness. He says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You're a God of covenant. Remember that. You are a good God who is always faithful. Don't break your promises. And so what we see next is that God relents from his anger. God relents from his anger, verse 14. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had said he would bring on his people. The New Living Translation says it this way. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. God answers Moses' prayer. See, God was going to destroy the nation. All Moses had to do was leave uh, God to do so. But Moses doesn't. Rather, Still in submission to God, he intercedes in prayer according to what he knew of the heart of God. Friends, does this sound familiar? Who does this? Jesus. Jesus does this. See, Moses doesn't try to strong arm God into changing his mind. That's not what's happening here. So that God would go against his word and against himself. No. But rather, Moses asks to step into the place of the people. Don't destroy them, destroy me. Pour out your judgment on me. Sound familiar? 
Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, we're jumping a couple of verses here. Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. He steps in their place. He, he, he pleads with God, God, forgive them, forgive them. But you know what? If you, if you don't want to, it's okay. Rather than pour out your judgment on me. Jesus. But here in the text, we see that God sees Moses' heart. See, he was able to jump all the way to verse 31 and 32. But then play out his decision from verse 14. How's God able to do this? Well, it's because he's God. He sees our hearts. He sees our hearts. But let's jump back to verse 15 and keep going. Moses comes down the mountain and confronts Aaron, which is a great conversation. Verse 19, after... Moses sees everything that's going on. It says, as he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. Now, this is, uh, go out on a limb here and go, this is probably one of those things Moses looks back on and goes, I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm going out on a limb. Verse 20, he took the calf they had made, burnt it up, and ground it to powder, he scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. So Moses burnt the calf, grounded it up to powder, and then made the people drink it. And I believe he did so for several reasons. Here's one. To show that their so-called God was nothing and could be easily destroyed. Here's your God. Let me show you. The other reason I believe he made them do this is to, to make the people pay an immediate consequence for their sin. There is forgiveness that flows from the Father's heart. There's no doubt about that. We preach that in and out every week. But hear this, there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to our sin. And so Moses makes them pay an immediate consequence for their sin. And then lastly... I believe he makes them drink this because he's saying, well, if this God will satisfy you, then drink. You would remember when the Israelites were hungry and thirsty, manna from heaven, and then God says to Moses, okay, take your, your stick, your rod, knock that rock, and let water flow from it. And they drank and they were satisfied. And so here they're going, they're turning away from that and they're turning to a false God hoping that it would satisfy them. And so Moses goes, okay, cool, drink. How does that taste? How does your success taste? Your accomplishments, your relationships, the things that you put over God hoping to find life and meaning in them, be careful. They will not satisfy you the way God satisfies you. And so he says, take, take and drink. Let's see how that goes. Verse 21, then Moses asked Aaron, 
What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Aaron, I left you here in charge to go do some really important things. You knew, you knew what you had to do. What happened? Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that these people are intent on evil. I mean, are you serious? That's your response. It's like, no, no, no. Moses, you know these people are bad. I mean, you know these people, these people are crazy, Moses. <laughs> they said to me, make gods for us who will go before us, before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I, I'm thinking Moses is going, but Aaron, you could have told them that it wasn't me who led the people out of Egypt. It was God. You could have pointed them back to God. Why didn't you do that? But no, the conversation continues, and, and this will blow your mind. Verse 24. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this cough. <laughs> like it was a magic trick. Like, are you serious? In verse 4, you took the gold, melted it down, and then with an engraving tool, you fashioned it. There was great intent. But now you're saying, hey, you know what? First of all, these people are crazy. And so I just took the gold, threw it in the fire, and then, bah, the calf came out. It's a classic excuse. Aaron passes the blame. Adam and Eve passed the blame. God says, Adam, what happened? It's this woman you gave me. Eve, what happened? It's the snake, God, that I, you must have allowed in here. We pass the blame. No, God, I was provoked. It wasn't my fault. God, what was I supposed to do? God, I was trying to be on mission. Mission at the club at 1 a.m., Aaron's sin was so great that only the intercession of Moses saved his life. Make no mistake, the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. But Moses prayed for Aaron, and we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20. You can go look at it later. And so after this, Moses gives a call to side either with God or with idolatry. He, he makes it plain. He says, okay, guys, this, this, what you have done is... is detestable in the eyes of God, but now you need to make a call. Which side are you on? Are you with God or are you for idolatry? Moses gave the people of Israel the opportunity to make a stand for the Lord. The Levites sided with the Lord and with Moses. That only makes sense for us to be on the Lord's side. Hear me this morning. I want you to be on the Lord's side. He is our creator, our redeemer, our protector, our sustainer. He is our father. Be on the Lord's side. However, being on the Lord's side requires something from you. Being on the Lord's side requires a decision. You have to make a decision. Being on the Lord's side requires separation. You, you, you have to turn away from whatever it is that you are hoping to find life and meaning in and turn to the Lord. You have to separate yourself from the idols of this world. And then being on the Lord's side requires action. 
It requires you taking steps of obedience, of seeking his face, of wanting to know more of him. If we read the story, we'll see that 3,000 people died that day. I'm pretty sure it was those who, who were the leaders probably involved in this idolatrous worship. But three of them, 3,000 of them died that day. God is serious about sin. I think we play with sin. We play with sin. And God is serious about it. And I could, I could page through this and show you various places where people have committed sin and it cost them their lives and the lives of those around them. And I know we're sitting here, we're going, yeah, oh, but Jesus... And, and amen to Jesus. We're so thankful that he stepped in our place. But sin is still dangerous. Especially for those who've crossed the line of faith. It will keep you from experiencing the fullness of who God is. What he has in store for you here in this life. It destroys relationships. Not just in this generation, but in generations to come. So many of us, so many of us have these strongholds and we're trying to figure out I don't get it. I'm a Christian. Why? Why am I wrestling with this thing still? Be careful of sin. 3,000 men died that day. I'd encourage you to go read it. It's, It's quite epic. Let me try to land the plane here. As a result of Israel's evil and wickedness in chapter 32... God said that they would go up to the land that he had promised to give them, but that his presence would not go with them. And so God's anger relents, and he forgives them. There's consequences to sin, but he forgives them. And then he says, okay, guys, okay, fine. I'll go, I'll keep going with you, but my presence won't be with you. He was speaking of the the near presence of God, his closeness. When the people of Israel heard this, they were filled with sorrow and grief. And as a sign of such, they took off their jewelry, the very things that led them into idolatry. They now go, you know what? I don't want this anymore. It's a lot like us, right? When you recognize the thing that is leading you into sin, what does Jesus then say? Cut it off. Get rid of it. If you know that at 11 p.m. you're on the internet looking at things you shouldn't be looking at, then, then maybe cut the internet off. It, it destroys this whole thing of, I fell into sin. No, you didn't. If we sit down, have a conversation, and we're being honest and vulnerable, I'm pretty sure we can, we can walk it through and we can see there were moments, moments, moments where you could have gone, you know what, no. I'm trusting in Jesus I don't need to go down this path. But we don't. And I believe here the Israelites recognize that it's, it's this jewelry, this, that we, we come from a place of slavery and oppression. Now we got some gold. And you're trying to figure out how, how did that happen. We'll get to that in our last sermon. But they've got some gold now. Right? You, you start making a little money. get your degree, you buy your home, you get your dream car, God goes out the window. I am now self-sufficient. 
Moses pitched a tent a good distance outside the camp and called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It's now clear God is going, hey, I'm going to be outside the camp. I'm going to go with you. But your consequence for the sin that you have committed, if you want me, come and find me outside the camp. And so whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, watch Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses went in, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the entrance of the tent. There the Lord would speak with Moses just as a man speaks to his friend. When it says that, 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 that God spoke to Moses face to face, that's, that's what it means there. It's not that Moses saw the face of God, but they were talking like a friend speaks to a friend. Intimacy. Whenever the Lord and Moses met at the tent of meeting, the people would stand and worship, each at their own tent. Moses interceded for the people of Israel in the tent of meeting. God saw that Israel had taken off their jewelry. He saw them when they worshipped. He saw them going to the tent of meeting themselves, which then leads him to say, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He sees that they recognize their sin. And he says, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This meant so much to Moses that he added, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. He, he, Moses adds that. He's like, I hear you, God, but I want you to know that if you're not going to go with us, then we're not going anywhere. And friends, that, that should be the cry of our hearts. God, I only go where you lead me. And, and, and here's a prayer that I have for many of us. We've got to learn to trust God's heart even when we don't always see God's hand. Trust his heart. He knows what he's doing. He's a good father. But, but God, I don't get it. Why do I have this sickness? God, why this disease? God, God, financially, why am I going through this? God, relationally, why is this happening? No, trust him. He knows what he's doing. Moses then asked a very important question. Exodus 33, verse 16. I'm pretty sure I'm throwing our production team all over the place. I'm sorry, guys. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. How, how will the people know? We want other nations to know that we belong to you. Rooted Fellowship, how do people know? Folks that are driving past here, folks walking how will they know that we belong to God? That's the question that's put on the table. And so in verse 17, God answered, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. I'll go with you. I'll make sure the people know that, that I am your God I am your father, you are my children. And even having said this, Moses still had the boldness to ask for one more thing. You've got to love Moses. The boldness to ask for one more thing, verse 18. Please let me see your glory. 
Please let me see your glory. We've just sung it. Show me your glory. Moses wanted more. He wanted to, to know God more, more deeply, more intimately. Show me your ways that I might know you, Moses asks. And this pleased the heart of God, and it still does. It's not just about signs and wonders, because you hear that and you go, yes, God, show me your glory, signs and wonders. And yes, we ask for signs and wonders. We ask for healing, provision. We ask for all of those things, but it's more than that. Moses here is asking to experience the attributes and character of God. Show me your glory. Show us your glory. See, no one had seen as much of God's glory as Moses did, and yet he wanted more. God is pleased when you and I want more of him. And not just the things that he gives us, but when we truly want more of him. His mercy, his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness. That, that's, that's what we want. That's what we should desire. That's what we should long for. And so listen to God's response to Moses' request. And I'll land the plane here. The team can come up. We'll get into more of this next week. But, but listen to this response. He said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, my goodness. Not more money, not more health, not more relationships. While all those things are great things, he says here, my goodness. And I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, but wait, there's more. You cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. Why is that? Well, it's because we still have sin. We still live this side of heaven. And God and sin cannot be in the same place at the same time. Not, not because sin has a chance of taking God out. No. We know that that's not true because we know that Jesus accomplished what he accomplished on the cross. He defeated sin, death, and Satan. but it's because we still find ourselves drifting towards him. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. I wish I had time. The rock, the rock. Jesus is referred to as the rock. And so here we get a glimpse of what it is that God is going to do in the future. But he says, here, stand on this rock. Because this rock is solid. This rock will hold you. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed you. I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you from me. Sounds weird, I know, but it's biblical. We, we, we needed Jesus to step into that place to protect us and he absorbs the wrath of God, the judgment that is for us. We needed that protection. Verse 23, then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Show me your glory. My hope is that that is the cry of every single heart in here. 
that as we walk out there and we live our lives and, and, and we do amazing things, we're constantly crying out to the heavens, show me your glory. Every day, show me your glory. In my marriage, show me your glory. In my parenting, show me your glory. In my work, show me your glory. My relationships, show me your glory. In my pain and my struggles, show me your glory. So that I might walk with you. And so, Father, that is the cry of our hearts this morning that we would turn away from idolatry and turn to you. And so, Lord, I'm asking you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would question us, that we would do a deep dive into our hearts and be honest with ourselves, because you already know, but, but you, that we would be honest with ourselves and, and go, what are the idols in my life? Some of them are big, they're obvious, other people see them, and some of them are subtle. Lord, I pray that you would expose every single one. That the light that comes from you would reveal the areas of darkness in our lives and in our hearts. We're asking you to show us your glory. But we're able to experience you, God, our Father, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And so we, we praise you for that and we thank you. And, and so we ask for more of your son. And then when Jesus left to sit at your right hand, he did not leave us alone. He sent the Holy Spirit who is a deposit to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would truly take a hold of our hearts. We're in desperate need of a Savior. His name is Jesus. And as we stand on the rock of our salvation, we cry to you. Show us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.